It's my understanding that if you fly on a commercial airline, especially if you're taking a relatively long trip, that the airplane might get up to 30,000 feet or so in cruising altitude, that they actually begin their descent 120 miles away from their destination. So I'm guessing that if they started their descent like three miles away, you'd have a less than enjoyable landing. This morning, our destination is John chapter 8, and I specifically want to land on two great life-altering statements that Jesus makes in this text. First, about his deity, or him being God, his claim to be God. And secondly, his promise of deathlessness to those who follow him. So there's lots to be said in these uh, 10 verses, but I'm trying to hit this particular uh, landing spot, this particular destination, which is what he says about himself, that he's divine, he's God in the flesh. And secondly, that if we believe in him, whoever believes in him would not see, would not taste death. So that's where that's where I want to go. But before we get there, I've got I feel like I need to back up. And I need to take a descent to that spot because if we just sort of land here abruptly, it would be a little bit jarring. So I want to I want to begin our descent actually back in John chapter one and eventually we'll land on John chapter eight. So that's how we're moving over the next uh, few minutes here together. So let's think first about the descent. John's primary purpose of his gospel is to help the reader answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And he opens his, his uh, gospel by telling you what he thinks. So he's going to write a biography, basically. And at the end of the gospel, he's going to say, who do you think Jesus is? But before he starts, he says, let me just tell you my conclusion. I mean, I've written, I've lived with them. Now I'm writing about them. I'm going to give you my conclusion right up front. And so if you look back in John chapter 1, he says this, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So you see, he's saying this word, this revelation of the heart and mind of God has become someone. He's become a a he. And, And he was with God in the beginning. And notice then, all things were made through this person. And in him, verse 4, is life. And light. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John is telling you right away, I think Jesus is God with skin on. I'm going to tell you that right up front. And then I'm going to write about Jesus. And then at the very end of his gospel, he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs or miracles which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you might have life. So he tells you who he thinks he is. He writes a biography about Jesus, and then he says, look, I've written some things. I haven't written everything, but I've written enough for you to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? And that's how he leaves his gospel. 
Now, in other words, John is telling us, uh, I, I want you to find out for yourself who Jesus is. That's his purpose. He doesn't expect you to buy in just because he makes this opening statement. He wants to give you the stuff that he lived through and then ask you at the end after you've had a chance to see him. Now, when you read through the Gospel of John, which if you're in the Bible reading plan, you're maybe halfway through or so, you'll notice that Jesus is constantly doing something that irritates the religious people of his day. He's constantly borrowing Old Testament images and applying them to himself. And he does this over and over and over again. And sometimes they're easy to see, uh, sometimes maybe a little bit more difficult. But let me just give you an example just in the first chapter. John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus sort of comes down towards the Jordan River. And John the Baptist, this is a different John than the person who wrote the book. That's John the disciple. John the Baptist, the, the forerunner, the, the, the proclaimer, the herald of the one to come. He's baptizing people. And when he sees Jesus, Jesus is coming to him and he announces to everyone, behold, In other words, pay attention. Everybody who's looking at me, look at this person. And what is he? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And he's borrowing an Old Testament image. The Old Testament image is the people were locked in slavery. They had no hope of getting out. They'd been there for 400 years. They'd just gotten this hopeless state, this hopeless, sinful state, this dark place. And they needed somebody to rescue them. And Moses was going to be God's mouthpiece. And they were going to be able to pass over or pass through death to life by trusting in the innocent blood of a lamb. And so you remember they put the the blood over the doorpost. And if you lived in that house, if you were under the blood of the lamb, then death passes over you. And John says, this is the real lamb. And Jesus says, that's right, I'm the real lamb of God. There are many more. I wish I could unpack them for you. Later in the first chapter, Jesus finds another one of his disciples, Nathaniel. And he says this, you will see heaven open up and angels ascending and descending on me. He's borrowing Genesis 28 and applying it to himself. John chapter 2, people are worshiping in the temple. And Jesus says, you know what? You don't need the temple anymore. You used to come meet with God in this particular location. The location doesn't matter because I've showed up. I'm the new location. If you want to meet God, you need to meet me. John chapter 6, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus does this miracle, feeds the 5,000 or maybe 15,000. And everybody thinks he's kind of like this new Moses. We're out here in the wilderness, and he brings down this bread, and he says, you're right, I'm the real bread of heaven. All this eternal appetite you have, it should be found in me alone. So he's always borrowing these Old Testament symbols, and he's applying it to himself. Now, when we turn to John chapter 7, now we're still descending. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and Sam explained this last week very well. He's come to what's called, it's a festival. It's called the Feast of Booths. It's kind of a strange name, and it commemorates an Old Testament event. What happened was, while the people were in the 40 years in the wilderness, the people of God, they'd been rescued out of Egypt, 
They had to live basically in what they called booths. And they were tents. They were sort of makeshift. You know, they didn't, ha- they couldn't just go to uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and buy a nice pop-up tent. They'd just go around and say, let's, let's make a tent. And they'd make palm leaves and all kinds of things into a tent. And they called, they were called sometimes booths. And so for, uh, a thousand, 1500 years, people had been making pilgrimages back to Jerusalem to celebrate this event. And they would come back, and of course, Jerusalem was a very small town. There's, they couldn't possibly house everybody, so people basically brought tents. It's like a big campout. Think of a, the Festival of Booth as a giant campout. So if you love camping, it would have been fun. If you hate camping, you wouldn't have enjoyed this. Because you're just, you know, just kind of living in this little propped up tent, and it lasted eight days, and it was like eight days of Thanksgiving. Imagine that. So you had this huge campout. And you had this huge event, this big festival, and two great things are happening at this festival. They have, as Sam explained again last week, they have all these candles in and around the temple. And the candelabras are big candles on a stick, and the, the candles, the burning flame was supposed to remind you of the pillar of fire of how God led the people through the wilderness. And then every day, the priest would take a gold jug, and he would pour water out of the gold jug onto the temple grounds. And it was supposed to remind you that the rock, the miracle of God providing water from a rock in the wilderness. Remember that? Moses strikes the rock, water comes out. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 7, he's come to Jerusalem for this festival. And while these things are happening, he makes some very remarkable statements. First of all, in John chapter 7, verse 37, when the priest is pouring out the water, Jesus stands up and says, I'm the true rock. If anyone is thirsty, come after me. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus standing there in the temple grounds with all these magnificent lights, and he says, I'm the true light of the world. Anyone who follows after me will never walk in darkness. Now, just try to imagine this for a moment. Your your people group, your tribe, you've been celebrating something for a thousand years. And you have lights and you have water as symbols of God's providence, God's protection, God's involvement in your life. And somebody comes up and right after the priest Drop the water. He says, you know what? I'm, real, I'm really the water. What, what are you talking about? We've been doing this for a thousand years. What are you, you can't just step in and say, I'm the water and I'm the real light. I mean, who talks like this? And that's exactly their reaction. Look at, look at uh, John chapter 8, verse 25. Who are you? I mean, just... Who do you think you are? They're completely stunned by Jesus' statements. Okay, so that, that's the background. Now we're going to try to land, okay? John chapter, chapter 8, verse 48. God, now Jesus makes two other claims here with this background. He makes a claim to his divinity, verse 58. And then his promise of deathlessness to those who follow him, verse 51. So those are the two things I want us to think about given this background. First of all, Jesus has made several I am statements already. 
We've taken a look at them. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread. And we'll look at some more. But but these these I am statements have created a, a heated exchange. They're very provocative to the religious people. And you see it because in verse 53, they say, who do you make yourself out to be? They've already called uh, Jesus a demon twice. And then they're asking, are you do you think you're greater than Abraham? Abraham, who lived 2000 years ago, who we say we go back to father Abraham and Jesus's answer, verse 56. Yet, yes, I am greater than Abraham. Who talks like this? Who says I'm the light? Who says I'm the rock? I'm the water. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Who talks like this? Jesus talks like this. And yes, I am greater than Abraham. In fact, he makes this very strange statement. Your father, interestingly, your father, not my father, but your father, he lived 2,000 years ago. He saw me coming. I was on the horizon for Abraham. And because he saw me coming, he rejoiced. Now, now, wouldn't you love it if we had time to unpack that? What do you mean Abraham, who lived 2,000 years ago, saw Jesus on the horizon and he was rejoicing? Except for we don't have time to talk about that this morning. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to go home and rejoice and find that out on your own. But so here he is, he's standing up and saying, yes, I actually am greater than Abraham. In fact, Abraham saw me on the horizon and he was rejoicing. Jews in verse 57, that's impossible. I mean, you're less than 50 years old. And then Jesus says this very powerful, provocative statement, verse 58, truly, truly. In other words, everyone pays special attention before Abraham was, I am. Mic drop. <laughs> Cue the fireworks. I mean, if the Jewish people had been irritated before that Jesus was taking Old Testament symbols and using them to point to himself, now he's taking God's name and using it for himself. So of all the I am statements, this is the most provocative one. He's saying, you know, the person that, or the, the God that you call I am in the Old Testament, you've been calling him that since Moses in the burning bush. I am. And you can tell how angry they are because in verse 59, what do they say? We've got to pick up stones and stone this guy. Nobody can say something like this. This guy's got to be a lunatic. I mean, to say you knew Abraham, that's crazy. But to say you're God with skin on, that's the craziest thing they'd ever heard. And, and irritating. Irritating enough that they tried to kill him. You see what John's doing? He's driving you to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? It's, it's the greatest question you and I will ever have to answer. If if John is right, that Jesus is God, he demands our full obedience. If he's not right, then Jesus is a lunatic. Because who would say stuff like this? 
A good person wouldn't say anything like this. A lunatic would say stuff like this. But do you see how John's trying to drive a wedge to you really only have two choices? He really is who he said he was, and so you've really got to alter your entire life accordingly? Or he's just a lunatic, and you really wouldn't want to have anything to do with the lunatic. He's trying to say you can't just say, he's trying to eliminate this. Well, I think he was a good person. He's trying to, to eliminate any kind of apathy or indifference. So who do you say Jesus is? Jesus says, I am. John says, he's the word that became flesh. But the question is, who do you say that he is? If you believe and trust in him, then he makes this promise in this text, verse 51. Truly, truly, pay close attention. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus here, when he uses the word death, he, he means you'll never have separation from God. Not that you'll never physically die. I think you can figure that one out. He, he's saying that you'll never spiritually be disconnected from God. What happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned is not that they physically died at that particular moment. is that they spiritually got died. They got disconnected from God, which is real death. Physical death just follows after like an echo. But Jesus is saying, if you get connected to me here and now, you're never going to see. You're never going to taste death. You're never going to have any, any break in, our relation, in, in your relationship with God. Here's how he says it in John chapter 5. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. Isn't that interesting? Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. That's what maybe I would have thought. Whoever believes in me will pass from death to life. He's saying it's already happened. It's a kind of reality that's already happened. You've already passed away from a spiritual separation with God because you've joined yourself with me. And so this physical death is really not something to be feared because you've really finished dying. Here's how one commentator puts it. Believing in Jesus means that death has lost its threat. The all-consuming character for our future is no more. You hear what I'm saying? There's no more real threat to death. And it doesn't need to have an all-consuming character in your life that you're so focused in on it. No, death is no longer ahead of the believer, but it's behind us. What a great phrase. If you believe in Jesus, death is behind you. I wonder if you really believe that this morning. If you really think death is behind you. Jesus says he's God. If you believe in him, he's telling you death is behind you. Now, if it's true that death is behind you, how might that impact your life today? 
Now, you could think of 20 great impacts. Let me just mention two. First of all, obviously, no more fear of death. This, this fear of death. I'm not saying aging isn't hard. <laughs> it's hard. It is hard to age. And when you get older, just things don't work the way they used to. And I'm not trying to say there isn't pain or difficulty, but there isn't fear anymore. Because you have already passed through it because of Jesus. He's already taken you to God. He's connected you relationally with him. Paul's trying to say it in a different way. 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last supper, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortal, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has lost its sting. See, it's not a threat when Paul is threatened by death. It's not a threat to Paul. He's already passed through death into life. Now, maybe uh, you, you like something that's more of a story. And there's a picture you can have in your mind. And I, I'm like that. I'm not very smart, so stories are good for me. And that's why I like the Chronicles of Narnia. And C.S. Lewis, in his last book called The Last Battle, he's trying to basically give you some kind of picture of what this whole dynamic means. You're still alive, but you're going to die, but you're not really going to die. And he, set, he sets a scene where there's this dark battle happening. And for the, the, the people you love in the book, the Narnians, they're, they're, all, they're, they're losing badly. And the, 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 the enemies are crowding them towards a stable. There's this little stable in the dark woods. And they know if they go through the door of the stable, they're going to immediately be killed. So this, this last battle is happening and they can see what's happening. The enemy is closing in around and they've got their door, their, their backs up against the stable door. And they realize, well, the stable door provides some sort of protection. Nobody can attack them from the rear. But these people are overwhelming. We're going to have to go through the door. And nobody wants to go through the door. Because they know if I go through this door, that's the end of life. The further, this is Tyrion, the king. The further we are away from this deadly door, the better. Farsight is friend who's an eagle the king is right away from this accursed stable door at all cost eustace his friend i'm coming to hate the very sight of the door so do you feel that i'm getting pressed into this door through the door is certain death i've got to do everything i can to get away from this door this is how many people live their lives they're terrified of this door And unfortunately, they all get shoved through the door. The enemy is overwhelming. They can't get away from the stable. And they all just get shoved through the door. Now, just enjoy with me Lewis's uh, description of the other side of the door. 
They stood on grass with deep blue sky overhead. The air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees, and under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing reds of fruits. Of such no one has seen in our world. What was the fruit like? Well, unfortunately, no one can describe the taste. All I can say is that compared to those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull. The juiciest orange was dry. The most melting pear was wooden. The sweetest strawberry was sour. If you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicine after that. But I can't describe it to you. (laughs) It seems then, Trinian said, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two very different places. See, if you think somehow death is like the end, it's the curtain that closes, it's dark, it's over, you've got the wrong view. Now, I'm not saying there isn't pain and, of course, separation from you and a loved one if you're on this side of this door, but if you have met Christ, the only thing that awaits you is something that can't be described. And so you wouldn't fear death in this world. That would be one of the clear implications that you will never die. Death is behind us. And if death is really behind us, shouldn't it create a much greater capacity for risk and adventure and courage in this world? It, sure, it eliminates fear, but it also should, should uh, breathe something into you. I mean, I'm not afraid of death anymore, so I should live life more fully. I, I should have a lot more courage here on this side of the door because I'm not afraid of going to the door. I, I'm looking forward to going through the door. But as long as I'm gonna, if God's called me to be on this side of the stable, then I should fight with more courage. I should live with more joy. I should have more laughter. I should take more risk. I should have more adventure. But here's my fear for so many Christians, including myself at times. They, they here's the picture I had in my mind. They live their life like they're, they're on a roll, a terrifying roller coaster. Now, this doesn't, won't apply to everybody, but let's say you've been on like the Tower of Terror, you know, that roller coaster, that terrible roller coaster down in Disney World or the, the other ones they have at Carowinds or whatever. And if you're like a little afraid of heights and your family basically shames you into getting on the roller coaster. I mean, you stand there, right? Right before you get on, somebody, you know, rushes in. They're like, whoa, whoa. But everybody's there, right? No one in like, hey, several people are missing from the last ride. And you get in. And you, oh, why did I get talked into this? Don't lower that bar. You know, and they lower the bar. Sorry, you're off. And then that terrible, especially those ones where you're going up a hill and you kind of go up and it's like, blink. You're like, this is it. The door is opening and I'm going to go through the door. 
and you ride the whole ride white knuckled on the bar. Right? You would not let go of the bar no matter what. And you're, oh, eyes closed. Oh, save me. <laughs> and many times when you get back to the start safely, you get off and what do you say? And let's ride again. You, you don't get to ride again in this life. So please, if you know Jesus, don't hang on to the bar and scream like you're not going to make it. Could you please just, I'm not asking you to let go with both hands today. But you see some of the, you know, the fools, they're out, yeah, 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 whole time trying to get their feet out and everything else. Could you live a little bit more like that? Could you live with a little less control? See, a lot of times that, that gripping is, I gotta be in control. I don't like this drop, I don't like this hill, I, don't, I gotta, I gotta steer things, so I gotta white knuckle my life because I can't trust God. I don't know if it's safe at the end, so I gotta do, could you just try? If you're a control freak, just try to let go a little bit. Maybe just begin with a little less pressure. Could you be more generous? Not, not just with your money, but your time, your talent, your ability to forgive, your grace. Why? Because God's got you. And if he has you, you're going to end up safe. He is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, if you don't think he is, I, I really can understand that. But then he's a lunatic. And I would not advise you to come back to church ever again, because that's what we do here is talk about Jesus. Because no one speaks like what he, nobody says the things he says. But if he is God, then he demands, he requires, it's best for you to give your whole life to him. And giving your whole life to him means you don't ride this life with your hands wrapped around the bar. You live with joy and courage. You take risks. Because all the things in this world are quickly going to fade away. And all the things that you think are so sweet now, when you get to heaven, they're going to taste like medicine. And you're going to wonder why I keep chasing after that when I could have stored up for myself more of things like this in heaven? Let's pray together. Or this, this, is, this is a centerpiece in John. In chapter 8, you say, you take on God's name. And it's either because you're the Lord or you're a lunatic. But we've been able to see because of your grace that you are the Lord. And so I pray first for people here that maybe don't, they haven't seen it, that they could see it. Today would be the day they would see. 
Secondly, I pray for the rest of us who probably spend a lot of our lives holding tightly to a bar because we're afraid of death. We're afraid we're not going to get enough out of this life. We, we somehow are white-knuckled on a life that you have meant to say, don't do that, you know me. Trust in me, let go, put your hands up in the air and live with risk and joy and courage. Would you strengthen the faint-hearted, I pray. And especially those few here who can see their life coming near the stable door. Would you take away all fear?